You're listening to the Nonprofit Problem Solver Podcast, brought to you by KevKayat.com. Kev helps nonprofit leaders deliver more impact faster and easier, so they can be mission accomplished in 40 hours a week or less. For more information, visit KevKayat.com. Now, here is the host of Nonprofit Problem Solver, Kev Kayat. Hey, Kev Kayat here. Welcome to Nonprofit Problem Solver. Thanks for tuning in. You are actually the Nonprofit Problem Solver. My job is to bring you practical, tactical expertise that you can use right now or in about an hour. You're about to hear the recording of me chatting one-to-one with an expert. You're more than welcome to join the next live call. Just zip on over to nonprofitproblemsolver.com to register. In episode seven of the summer series of Nonprofit Problem Solver, I'm talking to Amy Newman, an advocate of advances and applications in nonprofit tech. We cover a range of topics from how to work out if tech can help your nonprofit and how to find the best solution to ways in which artificial intelligence has already found its way into our nonprofit lives and how that seems likely to develop over the coming months and years. Welcome, everybody. It is time for Nonprofit Problem Solver. This is our uh, weekly podcast where we address uh, specific problems faced by nonprofits, trying to focus on the practical and tactical. And today uh, we are joined by Amy Newman, tech expert, uh, which is a rather generic title, but I know you know a lot more about tech than I do, so I'm, I'm happy to uh, to use that one. But but Amy, welcome. Uh, you can tell us exactly how you prefer to uh, describe your level of expertise and tell us a bit about your background. Sure. So I, I'm not sure I consider myself a tech expert, but I do consider myself insatiably curious around technology for good. And so I've accumulated a lot of uh, information and insights over many, many years of just sort of delving into the latest and greatest emerging technologies or social media or um, whatever the case may be and sort of trying to crack the code as far as how it can benefit the world you know so my main focus is on social impact and technology so I definitely am not a technical expert in a lot of facets of something like artificial intelligence or blockchain for example but I do study a lot of use cases and talk to a lot of people who are experts. So I hope by osmosis and learning, I've uh, come up with some ways that can be beneficial for other executive directors or people at nonprofits to actually apply these things to solve goals and challenges. Yeah, that's the practical and tactical. And of course, expertise is always relative. As long right. as you know, uh, more, uh, more than the person you're, you're talking to. Uh, so I just want to remind people who are uh, live with us on the Zoom call, the chat is open. If you'd like to uh, uh, ask either myself or Amy a question or contribute to the conversation in any way. Okay, so let's uh, just set the scene a bit with uh, tech and, and nonprofits. Would it be fair to say that the nonprofit sector, based on its overall level of investment in in systems and, and technology generally is uh, is typically a step behind the for-profit sector when it comes to technology? I think that's fairly accurate. And I think a lot of people that I talk to on a regular basis get a little thrown off by uh, the term technology in general. So I like to start conversations like this by mentioning a few things that we use all the time and don't think much about how they, they were created, we think about what they do for us, right? So um, electricity comes to mind. I bet there's not a lot of people in any given room who could explain to somebody how to set up or create electricity or how it works, but we know that if we want light, we flip a switch, and that's pretty much all we need to know about that, right? Um, or I get in a car, and I drive from wherever I am to wherever I want to go. 
I don't need to know how the engine works at all to make that happen. And we use apps on our phones every day that do really cool things that help us get through the day or navigate places. And we don't know how those apps were created. Maybe some of us do a little, but um, you don't need to to make them work. And I think that something like artificial intelligence is very similar. A lot of people think, um, they hear the term, they think they have to use artificial intelligence, but really what we're all we're doing is a better, faster, easier way to solve um, a challenge or get to a goal that is an existing goal within a nonprofit. So I think it is very true that usually nonprofits are maybe a few years behind in adopting things, which in some cases is good and in some cases is bad. You can kind of see um, what ends up being the best solution, but in any case, some people get nervous about adopting things simply because they don't understand the technology. And if you're curious like me and you want to learn about it, that's one thing, but it's definitely not necessary. The, would, would it also then follow that there is a higher degree of intimidation around tech amongst nonprofit folks? I would say so, and I think one of the big reasons is if you just think about how industrious and resourceful every single person at a nonprofit has to be, they're playing multiple roles, oftentimes they have fewer staff, fewer resources, less updated technology equipment, they don't necessarily have a full-time person for this piece of something, and then that, and then that, and then that, like a large corporation would. So I think that everybody is doing the best they can, and they're focusing a lot on their mission work, and so if things are going along pretty okay, sometimes something like shifting to new technology takes a back burner, but I would push against that because um, I have a nonprofit called Resourceful Nonprofit. And the reason I created it is to free up human time by allowing technology to do things that it does well and, and letting humans do the things only humans do well. And so I think that sometimes you run into the status quo barrier, which is my arch nemesis, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, if, if anyone says just that's the way that we've always done it, then that's a huge red flag for me, right? That means there's probably lots of opportunity to switch it up a little bit and get, you know, bigger, faster, stronger, better, create more impact. So um, it is a matter of fewer resources, maybe a little intimidation, but I think it's, it's often not nearly as painful as people think, and they're really happy when they did it because now they've freed up their time for maybe repetitive tasks or things nobody really wants to do anyway, and now they can meet with more donors or meet with more of their clients. That's, I, I, I appreciate the recognition you're calling out the, the status quo as, as a barrier, and part of it is the, the, just the, the issues that folks have around change, of course, but I wonder in your experience with nonprofits, whether there are, are two elements. One is the learning curve associated with new technology, because as you said, everyone is working so hard, there's longer hours and, and not sure. enough hands to, to do all the tasks we'd like to fulfill. The other one, uh, and you could take these in any order or, or combine, the other one I'm wondering about is a level of control. And we have you know, a lot of small profits, uh, we've, we know this thing in our industry about founder syndrome and, and people really having a, a strong, passionate vision about what they want to achieve. And that tends to, for better or for worse, extend the tentacles of control to every uh, nook and cranny of the operation, uh, including, as you said, the way we've always done it. There's a spreadsheet for that or, or, or something. So do, how do those two work against the adoption of, of technology or even just opening the conversation? Yeah, I think those are both common questions that I get, so I'm glad that you brought those up. And in fact, I'm working with a, another nonprofit right now to create some very, I would say, more basic nonprofit tutorials that are almost like an introduction so about why should we even care about doing this, rather than starting with all of the fantastic resources that, should, that tell you how to do things. I think the, the learning curve is a couple, of, a couple of issues, right? There is the perceived learning curve, and there's also the... I don't understand what this is, so I don't care about it issue, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think um, there's definitely, again, I, I think some of this is more perception than reality. So there's a lot of great tools out there that would actually free up an executive director's time to the tune of 5, 10, 15 hours a week if they started adopting it. And sure, it might take them two or three hours to learn it. 
And that seems like at the time, painful to set aside those two or three hours. But if you say over the course of the month, you get 120 hours back, um, or 60 hours or 10 hours even, um, the returns happen very fast. And then that, that can free you up from a founder's perspective of uh, thinking about stuff like strategy or how can you delegate more. Yeah, fundraising. So how can you actually free up that time and repurpose that time into, you know, figuring out capacity building grants and so you have more staff to help you or, or uh, a revised strategic plan so that you can delegate more or, or other things. So I think it's, it's a matter, again, of perception and, um, and also I think finding the right tools to make it easy. I think even uh, somebody with a lot of experience who can tell you the shortcuts is helpful, <laughs> always. If you just go online and start looking through tools, uh, you know, Googling this tool and then that tool and that tool, there's so much available that the response that I hear from people a lot is, well, I started to look at what XYZ was, and then two hours later, I had read all these blog articles, and a, I saw a video, and then I didn't know why I should use it, so I'll just get back to it later. That's another thing that you'll hear a lot. I'll just get back to it later. So even with good intentions, the learning curve and maybe the desire for control or the not even the desire, the, the, the necessity for you to do everything as a founder sometimes can be a barrier as well. Yeah, and I, I think what you're describing there is folks abandoning a search or an exploration because they get overwhelmed by features. I don't, I don't want to come back to that in a minute around uh, trying to specify what it is that you want to achieve and then look for the tool versus the other way around. And and that, in terms of, I guess that's a, a procurement question. <laughs> but but bef, bef, before that, the the I want to call out uh, as you mentioned, because we like to focus on the tactical and the practical, the way you describe the ROI in terms of time, I think is really important because uh, one, we tend not to uh, really focus on the ROI in some cases uh, because we're not dealing in a uh, in a commercial setting at times. And also because it's very easy for us to discount the the human effort and and the human time the labor time that we spend in nonprofits because we're doing we're working all the hours or it's a second job you know or, so so we don't tend to value that or put a dollar figure against anybody's time uh, and and what you did is uh, I think really useful because it's not quantified in dollar terms it's just hours versus hours and and if you could get those hours back or multiply those hours then uh, it, it, it can make a big difference. Right. And I think you, you hit on a very good point, which is whenever I have a conversation with somebody who wants to know what type of technology they should quote unquote use, I ask them what they're trying to do. You would be surprised how often that gets missed. So sometimes people will go to a conference, for example, and they'll be talking about artificial intelligence or blockchain or fill in the blank. And someone will come back and say, we need to do artificial intelligence. And the phrase do artificial intelligence is not really useful, right? So I think what you want to do is to apply something that is um, new or faster or didn't exist before to a challenge you haven't been able to solve yet or uh, a goal that you want to add to the collection of things the, of your mission work. So you're never applying any technology to do the technology itself. Um, and I think if you if you really step back and think it through, if you say, well, our goal is actually to serve 100 more clients this year. Okay, yeah. great. Okay, so that could take a number of different forms and you don't have to try to fit the shiny, the shiny object into the box, whatever the latest and greatest technology is. There may be some new technologies that's perfect, but I start with, um, are, you know, are you trying to save time? Are you trying to decrease burnout with your staff? Are you trying to uh, do, better, do, do a better job at storytelling? Are you trying to communicate better? Are you trying to show the value of your organization better? There's a number of goals that you want to have. And then once you figure out what you're trying to do, you work backwards from there and figure out if there's a possible good technology for that. So that, that I think is, is fantastic advice. Uh, and, and I think it's a lot more immediate than this idea of 
a, a specification-led procurement that you'll get in, say, for example, uh, in 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 a large organization or right. one that has a bureaucratic uh, machine behind it will say, "What are you trying to achieve?" Which is, in a sense, the 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 larger scale quest version of the question you asked is, a, "What do you what do you want to do?" But but putting it in those very practical terms, I think, is is really useful. And then you go out looking for. What can save me time? What can help me storytell? What can help me manage my donors better? What can help me support my clients or beneficiaries better? Right. And I think one of the ways I, I, I like to think through it to make it real simple is I have a lot of people ask me, okay, they get very excited if I talk about uh, artificial intelligence or blockchain, because it is interesting and it does open up possibilities. And they say, okay, so do I need to hire a developer first or what should I do first? <laughs> and I say, please never do that. And I shouldn't say never. If you're a small nonprofit, that's very unlikely to be the way to do it. So what I would say is, you know, a lot of people in the corporate space and in the nonprofit space or the social enterprise space have already been putting a lot of time and effort and talent towards these using grants that they already have and things like that. And you can benefit from that just by using whatever tool they've already created, right? So the first thing I do when I'm trying to personally solve a, uh, a, any sort of challenge is I ask my good friend Google or the AI-driven assistant Surrey on your phone. <laughs> and um, I just say, hey, what are the top 10 um, ways nonprofits help with time management, for example? Or what are top 10 ways to, that I can help people with mock interviews, for example? And then I see what comes back, and I read a few verified credible resources and if I see two or three things on every single list I take those and I go over to something uh, a, a software review site like a Captera and then I say I see I see what everyone else is saying about all these tools and whether they maybe have what I'm looking for and then I, it just cuts down the whole process so I'm never trying to design a new way to do whatever it is. It's very unlikely with some exceptions that whatever you're trying to do doesn't have a solution already available. And it could be AI based or it could be something even more simple than that. But I would start immediately by, by asking Google or um, people you know, what are some of the most popular tools for doing whatever it is. I would put the word nonprofit in there because then you might see the, 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 free, the free versions or the lower cost versions or the organizations that are really focused on impact. Sometimes that makes a difference and sometimes it doesn't. But just find out what's already out there. You don't need to reinvent the wheel. Please, please don't spend time reinventing the wheel when you could be doing other things that are more mission driven. Okay, so let's recap that. So, the, so ask yourself, what is it you're trying to achieve? Even if it's something as simple as like, I, I just need to use my time more effectively. So I, what can save me time? So you do a very basic search, uh, just dabble quickly, skim through a few of the, the links. If you see a couple of tools that stand out, seem to be on everybody's list, then go to a, uh, a, a recommended IT review site, and there are two or three of those. Captera is one that you mentioned. Uh, I think G2 is another one. There are two or three of those. And, and uh, plug in that tool and search and see what the comments are and, um, and then go from there. Right. And so what you're doing is you're just seeing if it, if it um, in a short amount of time, when I do this, it usually takes me maybe a half an hour to an hour to make a short list of two, let's say, uh, my top two. And then I can compare a little bit more if I need to, but it just cuts down the work of trying to make all the decisions about what to include or not include and all these different things. Uh, if a lot of people have already had good success using something and they've accomplished whatever you're trying to accomplish, save yourself the time and the energy and everything else and just maybe go with one of the recommendations that seem to match up well. Right. And then I guess the other element to that, uh, and I love this all because we're getting, we're, we're finding a route through uh, what I call feature fog where you, you know, you try and like, Ooh, this does that. Does the other thing do that? And does it, and you're thinking you just get lost in, uh, and then as you said, you abandon the search because it's just overwhelming. So avoiding feature fog by following this, this, this train of thought. Uh, but something 
uh, another word of advice, if I can restate it, uh, is that you want to use a, a well-established tool because there's a user community, there's good support for it, it's not a flash in the pan, it's, it may not be necessarily very old, but it's got some support behind it and, and people are experienced with using it. Agreed. And, and always take a couple extra seconds to, once you find a tool, see if on their website they have a free version for nonprofits or reduced cost version. If they don't, you can always email them and ask as well. They almost always will give you some sort of a discount there too. Okay. So th- so we've, we've done a good job, I think, there of laying the uh, the foundation, setting the scene for the current state in nonprofits. It can be confusing. We're often a bit behind the for-profit sector because we can't necessarily make the ROI argument as as cleanly or as or as or quantified in dollar terms the way for-profits can. Uh, but if we focus on impact, what it is we're trying to achieve, and uh, and 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 lead by our objective and our our the problem we're trying to solve, rather than get caught up in features or fandom or, or, or some other version of uh, <laughs> following right. the crowd. Okay. So what's next then in tech? Like what's around the corner? I mean, as you mentioned, artificial intelligence, machine learning, blockchain, they're, they're, they're sort of buzzwords, but as you said, just like with the electricity and the car example, I imagine a lot of people can't describe what they are beyond the zeros and ones that, that must be in there somewhere. Sure. And so I'll start with a couple basic definitions, maybe for artificial intelligence, since that's sort of the main theme of the technology we're talking about today. So artificial intelligence is one of those terms that's sort of all-encompassing. So depending on the person that you're talking to, it can mean a lot of different things. (coughs) Excuse me. So it's kind of a generic term that means that it's allowing some sort of uh, software to act a little bit more like a human as far as making decisions, seeing patterns, or some other things within that. So you have the big circle of artificial intelligence. A little bit deeper in that circle is machine learning. And that's another term that you'll hear used interchangeably, and I think that's fine. Um, But it just means that the more that you provide relevant data for the software to learn, the better it gets at something. And then a layer deeper within that is called deep learning. And that's when you're layering on multiple types of, um, they're called neural networks or ways, ways to consider data and you're getting even more sophisticated. But for, for our conversation, I think the term artificial intelligence is fine. Um, if you feel comfortable using machine learning um, in conversations, I think a lot of people who aren't technical do that as well. So just so you don't get thrown off in a conversation when someone starts throwing these these terms around, they essentially, for most people and most things that you would run across, mean pretty much the same thing. And, and Sorry, where yeah. does automation fit in with that? So there are a lot of different ways that, that artificial intelligence can be applied. So one of the things it's really good at is learning to do things and repeating things. So it it can do whatever you train it to do. And um, before we dive deeper into that, I do want to say that one of my personal areas that I focus a lot on is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I will say as a woman in the technology space since the mid-90s, it is pretty homogenous. And so when, when people are thinking about artificial intelligence or other things really, it's important to note that there's a lot of human bias already existing in the world. And if you're not careful, as you're training artificial intelligence or providing data into some form of artificial intelligence, if the data itself is already biased, um, it just perpetuates any sort of inequity or bias that's already existing in the system. And we can talk more about that if anyone's interested, but I would just say that um, if you have a homogenous group of people using a homogenous group of data that hasn't been reviewed by anybody with a different lens, it's very likely that you'll run into problems. I'll give you a good example. A couple years ago now, I went to a, it was actually a blockchain for good conference, but it, they, they had some AI mixed in there. There were eight speakers. They were all male. Um, six were white, two were black. One of the black gentlemen was talking about how he, 
he had a such a good um, AI facial recognition software tool developed at that point that the Gates Foundation was working with him on it to keep it privately used for social good applications. But he was saying that the first um, version that his team created, they were all excited to show him the demo. He went in there and it couldn't recognize his face hmm. because he was black and all the training data sets are very skewed. The, a lot of the large, highly used data training sets are um, skewed very male, very white. And so he, he called that out to the group because it was a homogenous group. And he said, I need, you, I need everyone to think about that because you need to have a lot of different people with lived experiences, backgrounds, and lenses all thinking about these things as you're developing them. So I just put that out there because if somebody is thinking about creating a new tool or getting a grant and working on this, it needs to be top of mind because otherwise anything existing bias just gets perpetuated. It can be, it can even shut out large groups of people across the world. So if you're looking, if you, if you have a technology that by definition looks for patterns and looks for tendencies within a group of data, it's going to reinforce any biases that that data has. So if that data is not uh, reflective of the, of the real population and has any skews or biases in it, those will be reinforced and exacerbated by the um, review of, of patterns and tendencies. Yeah, and as, as a nonprofit, there's a lot of data that hopefully, if you haven't been collecting it, you will start collecting it. But the more the more data you have about your donors, what they like, um, what they give to you, how much they give, seasonality patterns, you name it. If you're collecting all this information, then um, there's a lot of different types of analytics, whether they're really using a lot of artificial intelligence or not, that can help you get value out of that. And so if you haven't been collecting data, you should collect data, but you should also think about what you're collecting and why, and that you're not trying to prove, you're not trying to create an outcome based on what data you're collecting either. So it's more important for some types of organizations, but if, for example, um, I worked with uh, an infant mortality initiative, and for a long time people thought, that the differences between um, white and black outcomes must be poverty-based, but they did a lot of research and the data set showed that that wasn't the case. Half the people were um, on Medicaid and half weren't in the black population. And so the poverty had nothing to do with it. However, if you would have just let people who already assumed poverty was the issue, ask questions, all about poverty and other things, then no matter how much you analyzed it, if the data input is biased by already thinking of what the outcome should be, then you're again going to run into problems. And this is a very common, very, very common concern in artificial intelligence. And even at a small level, if you're not truly using artificial intelligence, really think through, you know, who are we talking to? What are we asking them? Why do we think we're asking? Um, what are some of, you know, what are the range of outcomes that might happen? Don't try to push it in a certain direction because that can really alter the effectiveness of your mission. I, I think there's an, an interesting point here around the, we talked about the intimidation that uh, the, the fact that technology can be intimidating. I think there's a parallel with uh, just numbers generally for those who don't feel necessarily that, that numerate or that comfortable around uh, around data and numbers, there's a presumption that they have a inherent accuracy about them, that something's been counted and quantified, that it must be right. And I think you're raising an important point that all of it is human invention. All of it is a reflection of what we do and record. And so all our flaws and features and our and our beauty and wh however you want to describe what we what it is that makes us human that's all captured in in data just like it is in words and sure. and can have all those those biases so it's it's a it's a useful point to remind us of so thank you for that sure and and i think one of the interesting things to do if you're leading a nonprofit is to find out um some of the use cases of other nonprofits in your space, maybe how they've used artificial intelligence. There's 
typically in any space, there's very large organizations doing it down to very, very tiny organizations doing it. But if you have a similar issue or a mission uh, and goals, you may be able to do things somewhat similar to what they've done. So they could have even created a tool, for example, um, the crisis text line is an artificially intelligence-based text um, tool that can help interact with people who may be feeling suicidal. So right now in the times of mental health, um, it can jump off to a human, but there's a lot of interaction similar to a chatbot, I believe. I haven't really, um, I think they keep enhancing it and it may be used with some social media platforms at this point to interact. Uh, when they see certain terms coming up repeatedly, but there there are a lot of applications. But once somebody <clears throat> in the nonprofit space has created something or social enterprise, they may be and often are open to licensing it for free to other people or um, letting you use it. A great example that almost every nonprofit can use are artificial intelligence chatbots. So these are something that, for example. Uh, if you have a Facebook page with a lot of people and you're a food bank, which is very common right now, a lot of people want to know what days are you open? What hours do you have pickup? Do you have produce? Do you have this? Uh, there's probably 10 or 20 frequently asked questions. And rather than have a person sitting there answering all these questions or on the phone answering all these questions, you can set up a free for nonprofits chat bot through mycharitybot.com, for example. Um, I think if you get real sophisticated, it may be a small fee per month, maybe $10, but you can go in, it's somewhat like um, a decision tree. So you have your top 10 maybe frequently asked questions, and then you have a couple answers that you put in, and then everything from that point is automated. And if the person gets confused, you can get a text or an email to whoever would answer the questions. But just that way alone, I've talked to food banks that have um, at least told me that they thought they would save 5, 10, 15 hours a week just of people answering phones and answering questions on their social media just from that one free AI tool that's available right now. Wow, that, that's amazing. Uh, when you, you mentioned some definitions just a few minutes ago, uh, and I think I interrupted you with about automation. Uh, one of the terms uh, is blockchain. Uh, what does that mean? What does it look like? Uh, are there examples in the nonprofit space at the moment using blockchain or, or, or exploring ways of using blockchain? That is a great question. And I think that blockchain has a lot of really interesting applications. It's already started to become known as distributed ledger technology. And it's, I would say, fading a little bit into the background in the same way that the uh, HTTP and other languages that run behind the scenes on the internet are fading into the background, but they're still working. So the biggest thing about blockchain to know is that rather than today's internet, which is the, is the internet of information, where you can sort of find or share any information to as many people as you want, I think about blockchain as the internet of value. So you use it when you want to uh, exchange something that only one person can own at one time. So that could be something like money or um, a land deed or a car title or your degree that you got from a college or anything else that is, or your identity. So it's something that one, one person can own at one specific point in time. And when you transfer it, it is sort of time stamped and um, there's a record that it has moved to that other person at a certain point in time, and it's all based on a type of technology uh, coding that people agree on is already inherently secure and safe. So um, you can't go back and change the records. The most famous uh, version of this is Bitcoin. But Bitcoin is just one of many, many applications that you can use blockchain technology for. For the average nonprofit, I would say that 
it can be helpful. There's already large nonprofits using it to transfer money directly to people in foreign countries who may have issues with how money gets moved through the government and to the final um, person in that country, for example. Mm -hmm. There are there's applications of how to track solar power and exchange it with your neighbors, for example. There are lots and lots of applications, but for the typical nonprofit right now in the United States, it's less used because it's less needed. So a lot of foreign countries are using it for, or poor countries where there are unbanked people are using it for banking transactions. That is a problem here, but it's much less of a problem here. A lot of things function pretty well the way they are in the United States. So there are applications, but I would say as far as the main ones that you hear about, a lot of them are outside of the United States right now. And if you're a small nonprofit, I would say it's an area of interest to look, to look at if you're curious, but mostly again, I would go back to what is your goal? And if your goal is that you need a better way to timestamp records of what service was provided here and all of that, um, somebody may have created something already, and if not, that might be something to look at a year or, or 18 months down the road. But I wouldn't try to create anything around that. Um, I would look at ways to, other ways to do a, a better, faster, easier job of that. Uh, could I think of a um, hundred different ways I would love to see it used in the United States? Yes, I've had this conversation with many people. I think it may be a little premature as far as um, the need really has to be a, a really high need that isn't currently solved by any other type of technology in order for it to be really a necessity. So that's why you see um, for a while I was advising a, an organization in um, Zambia, Africa, for example. That's a, that's a market that needs it. Here we can do things using a lot of other technology that already exists to do to get where we want to go and we don't necessarily need to create a new type of platform right yeah the, the only uh, unbanked uh, I like that term unbanked uh, population uh, in you know in serious need that's that's not well served because of their uh, not having uh, a bank account and 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 uh, folks not having necessarily readily cash is the homeless uh, particularly those with uh, mental health problems that that are, are are mobile or transient and so on. But again, I don't. I'm, I'm not suggesting that that's a an application. But um, there's uh, there there's potential there for um, some possible technology, perhaps. Yeah, I think there are already some nonprofits in the United States looking at how to track client uh, services they provide to clients, for example, homeless people or um, people in poverty or the, who need health care, for example, and are, are getting it from a number of different providers. I haven't heard of one that is uh, already been well tested and is inexpensive and readily available for people to use, but the concepts are all great. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if in another year or two, we see a lot of things, these things coming up, just like a couple of years ago, we saw a lot of artificial intelligence based apps coming up that are mm -hmm. very commonplace today. Um, I mean, if you think about even your GPS on your phone, anytime you do a search, if you buy something from Amazon and you see what else they recommend, we're very used to artificial intelligence. And it has been around a really long time, but it's gotten smarter and smarter the more data has been available by people interacting on their phones and through online. And the um, cost of processing power has gone down tremendously. The speed of connectivity is, is gone up or has gone up while all costs have gone down. So everything related to artificial intelligence is getting better exponentially fast. Um, and I think blockchain is, is getting very close to that as well. And there, yeah, I, I wouldn't worry, I wouldn't think as much about blockchain for small nonprofits right now. Um, but I would, I would keep an eye on what the larger versions of your, your nonprofit with a similar mission are doing, and maybe there's something that you could um, learn from that. And, and is there, uh, a, 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 sorry, what's the connection, or can you describe the connection between the AI and the machine learning and the pattern recognition and, and, and that sort of, uh, that, that sort of technology that learns from more and more data? And then the um, 
blockchain definition you described where one person owns something at, at one time. Is, the, is there an overlap or an interaction between those two? Well, I think you can, I think that um, blockchain functions more like hardware and AI functions more like software. But for most things, I sort of separate them in my head as far as what the use cases are. But you can, uh, so pattern recognition is one of my favorite aspects of artificial intelligence. I just had a conversation with the uh, chief innovation officer of Philips and we talked about how artificial intelligence is being used in COVID research. And, um, in, and you, you can use sensors in, on someone and you can track what their symptoms are, you have their background information, all anonymous. Um, but you can tell that this is a you know, 55 year old male with these pre-existing conditions and other things and you can watch their biometric markers and you can start to see what symptoms they have, and you can track that, what um, medications are being tested, what the outcomes are, were they good, were they bad, did it work, did it not work. Um, there's not quite enough information to really definitively solve things yet, but you can start creating patterns, and you can also send people home faster with these monitors, and at some point you could have millions of people being monitored by AI algorithms where you can never have millions of people being monitored by humans mm -hmm. because they, humans don't immediately see um, patterns because they can't see millions of data points simultaneously, although that would be nice and hopefully Apple or Google or Microsoft are, <laughs> are working on some chip for that that we can get. <laughs> but um, all kidding aside, it, it's really interesting to me because I'll give you another another um, use case. So in Africa, they have a lot of problems with poachers, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so in one situation, they trained artificial intelligence to see what was an animal, what was a poacher, uh, maybe what sounds to listen to as far as gunfire or something else like that. They trained all of these um, data sets through putting in a lot of different data points so that it would know when a poacher and an animal were too close together. So they would have thousands of acres, millions of acres of uh, land to cover that no human could feasibly cover, but they had drones using this artificial intelligence looking for patterns. So when they saw a pattern, they could alert the rangers and get somebody in the vicinity quickly. So in one case, they went from 19 elephants being killed per month on average to zero over six months. Wow. And so that's a not a really complicated use case, but just somebody had the forethought to think, well, we know, you know, animals look like this, humans look like this. If they're within this much proximity, we have this many minutes to get somebody on site somehow. And then you can monitor a huge area because the artificial intelligence can keep track of all these things simultaneously, whereas um, you wouldn't be able to afford the amount of humans that would need to do that, and humans may not even immediately see those patterns. But you, but you need to have the uh, data to begin with. You do need to have the data to begin with. So a lot of um, a lot of applications now are trained to do pieces of creating some other application, like it can. It has data sets to recognize a photo, for example, of all these different. Um, animals already in it. So this you hear about this sometimes right now when they find an endangered species somewhere they saw they captured a photo of a something they had they thought was extinct mm -hmm. and it's because they've been training artificial intelligence and in capturing photos and when something comes up they can they can see that it is something they could, should take a further look at. So, so they're kind of including things. So the point here I'm, I want to draw it is that data we often tend to think of a number in a cell on a spreadsheet right. <laughs> or, you know, or, or, or data we might put into a form like a name or an address or something. But uh, the, the point you're making is that uh, audio files, video files, uh, still photographs or images, drawings, uh, all sorts of different uh, information, as long as it's digital, is effectively data. Yeah, I'll give you another really interesting example because it's probably going to crop up in more cities. In Flint, Michigan, they had um, and still have some issues with lead in the pipes, right? So what they did is they went back and they went, 
I think 100 years back through records and they got 71 different types of data sets, including handwritten little cards that somebody had written in the, in, you know, 1905, what the type of building was and they accumulated all these things, how old's the building, what's the value, where's it located, how far away from the street is it, um, what did the, what materials were used by construction, all these data points, they used optical character recognition to scan them all into a database. Which and is just then, a scanner really. Yeah, scanner really. Yeah. And so, and to your point, it does have to be digital somehow, but that's an easy way to do it that anyone can do. And then they took all this and they started training the artificial intelligence how to recognize which pipes to dig up. So after they did this for a while, they went from 20% um, of the pipes they dug up having lead to 97% of the pipes they dug up having lead. So it was that much more accurate that they could they could remediate another 2,000 homes just from doing this project, which is huge. So that's, uh, would that be an example of predictive analytics to a certain yes. extent because they, uh, they, they knew the likelihood of, of, of lead in the pipes based on the correlation to all the other information being collected. Yes, and then as you accumulate more information, it becomes more accurate. So they were able to deploy teams of people very precisely to um, and have a high probability that if they did a dig, which is expensive and time consuming and takes a lot of um, human capital as well, that they knew that that would be actually be what they needed to focus on. And they hadn't been able to do that before. They were mainly guessing based on um, all the original factors they had, but they didn't have the all the data points and they didn't have the pattern recognition that artificial intelligence provided. They just had maybe some level of pattern recognition from human experience, but that's very limited data points compared to dumping all this past hundred years from 71 different types of data providers into one place and swirling it around, I think is the technical term. <laughs> and then you, you come In out a with data some lake. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you, you get a more scientific version of that on a much larger scale and much more quickly. And, but the, the point I think you're making is that is if, if something's recorded, even in, on an index card, handwritten, mm -hmm. uh, that presumably can be scanned in, a, in the technology around uh, capturing handwriting is getting better and more accurate all the time. That the, the lesson, even for small nonprofits with, say, just serving a few people, is record something anything that you record may, may be useful. It's not necessarily uh, immediately useful to you right now, perhaps, or it may, be, it may seem technologically primitive. It doesn't mean you need to have expensive systems. You don't need to go and get loads of tablets and have apps capturing all this data. You, you can actually use some, some manual, relatively manual data that eventually will be helpful in recognizing patterns for your programming or your, or your fundraising that will um, improve how effectively you do that over time. Absolutely. And there's even um, free or low cost analytic software that can um, help with sort of parsing out what you already have. Um, I think I wanted to also jump into some, some, already freely available things that would be really helpful to a large number of nonprofits day to day. So one of the first ones I think of, a lot of times people are already familiar with many different types of artificial intelligence, but they would, you wouldn't necessarily label it in your head that way. So one great one that I know a lot of people need access to is uh, natural language processing, which all that means is language translation software. So you can just, um, you know, speak into your phone, you can use, a, there's a whole host of these, most of them are free, speak a certain language and it will come out the other language and the other person on the other side can do the same thing. So this is useful in healthcare settings, for example, when somebody, or really any, any service you're providing, if someone comes in who doesn't speak the language, you can do that. They also have these to help people who are blind. Um, there's different software, artificial intelligence driven software. A lot of this is used again, maybe more outside the U.S., but um, it can recognize someone's surroundings and tell them um, what is there. And it can recognize things that it holds up the phone to. It can speak it out loud and say what it is and things like that. There's um, AI software that won a grant from Google maybe 
a year or two ago that um, to help deaf people, um, somebody can speak into it and show them the screen and it will convert to American Sign Language um, gestures. And mm. so there's, I think about it like, again, what challenge are you trying to solve? And your day-to-day -day work for your nonprofit, what types of groups are you working with? What types of things are you helping them with? I think when you and I talked earlier, you mentioned maybe um, if you're helping people get jobs, there's great AI mock interview um, apps that you can do. So a person can practice how to do well at an interview on their own time and, and learn what pieces they need to improve on through an app. So you don't necessarily have to spend the same amount of time one-on-one -on -one coaching someone. Um, and I'm a both and person. And by that, I mean, just because AI can do something doesn't mean humans can't also help with that problem. So you may want to have somebody do a few mock interviews with artificial intelligence in an app. And also, you would might want to practice, I, I was going to say in person, but maybe you want to practice on a Zoom interview, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> With an actual feedback, real-time loop of a person. So I, I always think that in my head, um, artificial intelligence, at least in the foreseeable future, doesn't replace humans, but it does do some pieces of jobs that people either don't have time for just don't like doing repetitive tasks, tasks that don't require the level of creativity or skill or insight that a lot of people at nonprofits have and don't get a chance to use as much because they're typing things into a spreadsheet over and over or answering the phone or responding to questions or doing things that technology might be able to help with. So I think, um, I think about it like freeing up human time to do things that people want to do more of or yeah have a lot of cre creative things or strategic things, decision-making, um, human-to-human things, like an executive director sitting down with a large donor or foundation is a really high-impact thing they can do with their time. Um, an executive director manually filing things or sorting through papers or trying to find something or... Um, there's lots and lots of examples. Those are very low return on time as far as the value to the organization. So there's no reason not to consider using technology that already exists and is easy to use and maybe even free to help with freeing up the time. And some of that is artificial intelligence based and some of it isn't. But uh, again, I think you want to use your time for the highest value. And also you want it to be more fun. There's a lot of things that burn people out and nonprofits. Um, this is a huge issue that I hear about a lot. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you do too when you're yep. coaching. Yep. And, um, and so why wouldn't we want to free up somebody's time doing these tedious things they don't enjoy when in, in, instead of doing those tedious things they don't enjoy, why don't we give them back 10 hours a week to do the creative, artistic, you know, insightful, thoughtful, uplifting work that they want to do more of? So at the extremes, there's some things that really ought to be automated, and there's other things that really are human only. But there's a gray area in the middle where they can work well in, in unison or, or complement each other for the maximum productivity. Absolutely. One, one thing I want to uh, bring up, uh, we have a few minutes left. You mentioned at the, earlier, we talked a bit about bias in the data and and so on. Uh, I'm also curious what your thoughts are with regard to the digital divide and the absence of some basic technology, whether it's Wi-Fi or broadband or having um, smartphones and tablets and, and desktops, uh, laptops and so on in, in, in poorer areas and how that affects um, just the advance of these technologies in the nonprofits that serve those communities, but also in, in terms of the data collected and what we are learning about patterns of human behavior and support and so on. That is a wonderful question. I appreciate that. And the digital divide is something I've also been working on um, where I live in Cleveland. And so I'm going to answer that two different ways. I'm going to immediately point people if they, um, well, I think it is, it's a huge um, tragedy, first of all, because there are a lot of areas 
Primarily, they fall right in line with the redlined areas of historically racist policies in the past, where resources were intentionally drawn out of communities, and a lot of that you can still see today, and a lot of those areas are the ones that don't have um, high-speed internet. But I'll give um, two quick remedies if they're available to you that you could look at. The first one is an organization called PCs for People. So they have, um, they're definitely in Cleveland and several other cities. There may be similar organizations, but they refurbish computers and then you can get them at very low cost for people who fall 200% or less under the poverty line, which is the, uh, a lot of how services are provided at, um, in relation to poverty in a lot of, for a lot of nonprofits. So you may be able to get a laptop for very inexpensive or a desktop, a monitor and things like that. They also have Wi-Fi hotspots available or some um, cities are providing Wi-Fi hotspots. So in places where people can't get broadband, which is a lot of the poorest areas of the country, um, they may be able to get a Wi-Fi hotspot either through a local library that they can keep um, renewing or through an organization like a PCs for People, or um, you could just do a little bit of research on how to get um, free laptops or Wi-Fi hotspots for your end users. You can also get very inexpensive things like a, a Kindle Fire tablet, for example, that has video capability. It runs a lot of apps. It can have um, connectivity. You can get them brand new on sale sometimes for $30 type thing for a tablet so that if somebody doesn't have a phone or a data plan is usually the biggest thing. A lot of people have a phone, but they're not able to look at, at videos, for example, mm -hmm. because the data plan's too limited. Um, and so there, there are some immediate things you can do there. The other thing I would think about is asking for a capacity building grant for your organization. And I'll give you a little insight on this from talking to some very high level people at foundations. Um, it's unwise to ask for a technology grant directly or grant for technology, but it's great to ask for the same thing if you talk about it in terms of how it's going to benefit your mission, which is called a capacity, a capacity building grant. So the difference is if I say to someone, I need um, $10,000 to buy tablets and computers, then no one's going to fund that because it doesn't tell them how it's going to change the world and make it better. But if I say I need $10,000 so I can buy a hundred iPads and 20 laptops so that I can have, well, let's say it's not COVID times. I can have people going out into the field, real time capturing data, putting it into our system so that we're developing this database of useful information that's real time. We can see who got what services when, what the outcome was, and we know that by saving the time of them writing something on paper, driving back to the office, typing it into a database, and it won't surprise you at all that this is very commonly still happening. Yep. <laughs> um, if somebody has a laptop at home and they have an iPad and they're capturing this, or, or they're capturing on a, a laptop, however you want to do it, um, taking those steps out of the middle, um, getting the data real time, having that interaction. Let's say we feel we're, we, we can help another 150 clients in the next year with services, you know, get them to whatever we do for our mission work. I'll fund that all day long if it right. makes sense. And, and have the data that can start to feed um, just some just some basic analytics. It doesn't have to be an AI engine, but just having that 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 data to understand what's working and what's not working in right. your uh, programming is vital to making the impact you want to make. Yeah, if you can measure it, you're much more likely to get funding for it. And also you're much more likely to make your next move a wise move that's based on what works the best. Right, okay. Well, that's, uh, that's a fantastic uh, way of closing down our conversation. Uh, I, I've really enjoyed learning about uh, pattern recognition, AI, blockchain. I feel up to date about where things are. Uh, you gave some really practical tips around how to approach even just some basic apps and technology, no matter where you are in the nonprofit space, as well as a, a window into what's around the corner over the next couple of years. So that was an immensely productive uh, hour in terms of practical and tactical advice for nonprofit EDs. So thank you very much, Amy. 
Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Where can people find you online? Sure. So um, if you want more technical tips and free tools and low-cost tools, you can go to resourcefulnonprofit.org. It's for all those resourceful people out there at nonprofits. Um, and then you, I always love to connect with people, so feel free to connect with me any on any of your favorite social media as well. I talk a lot about all these things all the time. Okay. Well, that's great. I, I appreciate uh, you coming on today. And uh, people can find you just about anywhere. And this conversation will no doubt continue. And I'd love to speak to you again, uh, specifically around the, the bias and equity issues uh, as they play out over the next 12 months or so. Wonderful. I look forward to it. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for joining the Nonprofit Problem Solver. Uh, next week, I will be speaking to Cole Hoover from the Moving Worlds Institute, again, about social enterprise and some of the lessons that he has for nonprofits. I will see you then. Take care. Thanks for joining us on the Nonprofit Problem Solver podcast. Special thanks to this week's expert, Amy Newman, who you can find at resourcefulnonprofit.org and on just about any social media platform. This episode was produced by Glenn Munoz at PodPro Audio. You can join future conversations live by visiting nonprofitproblemsolver.com. Connect with Kev on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. You're also invited to join a private Facebook group, Social Impact Practitioner, where every day we go deep into the practical and tactical work to accelerate your impact. Because good causes deserve better results.